Um, before we begin, how many of you are fans of emojis? It's like three people. Great. I know Sue. Is Sue Carlson here this morning? Sue is, if you ever text with Sue, it'll be like 80% emoticons and like 20% words. She communicates through emojis. So I kind of did uh, this morning. So last night when I was preparing, I was feeling a little bit squirrely, I guess, and just silly. And I thought I would integrate emojis into this morning's message a whole bunch, just to maybe keep you on your toes. I know it's probably not going to be funny, but I'm not going to lie to you. I'm willing to accept a pity laugh, okay? So that, uh, just laying that out there. Um, so last week we chatted about uh, <clears throat> the church. We were talking about the church, and we were talking about what our greatest purpose is um, as individuals and as the church. And if you were here, you'll remember we essentially derived this from Bruxy Cavey's definition. Bruxy's the, uh, the pastor of the Meeting House down in Oakville. And his definition of the gospel, I have a feeling that our pro presenter just quit. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, that's true. My mic stand didn't fall. Um, that's okay. I'm not totally dependent on the slideshow. Not at all. That's all right. You know what? We can, uh, we can wing this. So Bruxy's definition of the gospel, anyone who's read his book Reunion lately and, or heard him speak lately, he's been kind of um, building a lot of his messages around this, uh, this phrase that is his kind of encapsulating the gospel in 30 words. And he says, Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion. And we said last week that the part that gives us as individuals and as a church our ultimate meaning is this little phrase, this little section of the, of the phrase that says, set up God's kingdom. Um, in other words, the church is going to find its ultimate fulfillment, its ultimate sense of purpose when we are consumed with both experiencing God's kingdom here on earth as well as working to advance God's kingdom here on earth. The idea of, uh, as Jesus taught us to pray, actually, uh, <clears throat> that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and he uses you and I as the church to accomplish those purposes. And so we said, uh, that was the purpose of the church, that was the purpose of us as individuals, that's what should get us up in the morning and keep us going throughout the week. Um, and so this morning we want to continue that conversation, we want to take it a little bit of a different direction. Uh, last, a couple of weeks ago I was asked... Um, by someone, why I still love the church. So why, why do you still love the church, Stephen? And implied in that question was <laughs> um, just this long list of reasons for not loving the church. Because if you're like me, you'll have gone through seasons in your life, and, and perhaps you're in one now, in which you have a hard time with the church. You've struggled with the church. And I can't say uh, I've ever wanted to walk away from it completely. Last week, you remember, I, if you were here, I shared a bit of my own church experience. I went from CRC to baptism, or to baptism, yeah, to the Baptist way, to Pentecostal, uh, to Anglican, to Brethren to E-Free, and now here to Grassroots. So I have tasted a wide variety of flavors 
of what the church has to offer. And in all that time, I can't say I've ever really wanted to just walk away from the church entirely, but there's been this struggle, and really struggle is the best word for it. It comes from stepping back and looking at the church, looking at our Sunday morning routines and all the churchy stuff that we do through the week, looking at the way that the church has been portrayed in the world, the way the church has been represented in the world. And I just can't help but feel a bit disillusioned with this whole thing. I become apathetic and lazy toward it. Never again, like, like I said, never like I'm giving up on you, church, but just kind of like, meh, church, eh, take it or leave it. Have you ever been there? Awesome if you haven't. Praise the Lord. But I have been there. And... And so this question, why do I still love the church? I had to, this, this past week, um, actually just the last few days, I had to stop and think about that. Because you look at our history, you look at the Crusades, the Inquisition, the witch hunts, the endorsing of slavery, the residential schools, the sex abuse scandals, the um, scandals in general, the, the church splits, on and on and on it goes, all throughout history, even into today. And it doesn't seem like the church has lived up to this, uh, this um, purpose, this sense of purpose, this sense of meaning that we called to live and called to um, consume ourselves with day in and day out. And so this is what's been at the heart of my struggle. And it's prompted the question, why then do you still love the church, Steve? Why do you still love it? Why do you not give up on it? And so I'm also a follower of Jesus. And I know many of you are as well. And Jesus happened to be a pretty big fan of the church. And so were his disciples. And so was Paul, for that matter. And this is what Paul says in his first letter to Timothy about the church. He's talking about, we have no verses, but I will read it because I've come prepared, see? Uh, verse, oh my, what verse is this? It's in the first letter to Timothy. I have the reference on the screen if it worked. Anyway, he's talking to Paul. I mean, he's talking to Timothy because he is Paul. And he says, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The church, Paul said, is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Paul put a lot of stock into the church. He had a lot of hope that it would carry out the setting up of God's kingdom message, that it would be the conduit of truth used to tell the world about Jesus and to show the world what this kingdom looks like and how we are to activate the kingdom in our midst. Paul put a lot of hope and a lot of stock in that. He valued the church tremendously, as did Jesus. So last night I sat down and I thought through four reasons why I still love the church. 
And these reasons are completely unrelated to each other. They're totally random. I am sure you can come up with much more than just four reasons. I'm sure you can come up with probably way better reasons than I've come up with even. But these are four things that as I was reading and as I was just thinking and, and asking God to kind of, just talking to God and asking him to share um, on his heart what he wanted me to share this morning, this is kind of what stood out. And, uh, and so my hope is that in spite of all the ugliness of our past, and sadly, the brokenness that is so evident in our current state, that I can convince you that this big, beautiful, messy, glorious, infuriating institution called the church has earned our respect. Hey, there we are. That's a good one. See, that was an emoji. That was funny, right? <laughs> My hope is that we can... Um, Okay, we can move past that one, can't we? <laughs> or we can't yet. Oh, why do I still love the church? Hmm, think, think, think. Anyway, my hope, folks, without getting uh, distracted too much here by my awesome uh, use of graphics, is that by the end of today, the end of this message this morning, oh, 1 Timothy 3.15, that's where it was. Gosh, stay on track. Okay, don't get distracted by the slides. I'll let those guys do what they're so capable of doing in the sound room. Uh, let me say one more time. My hope is that by the end of this message this morning, I will be able to convince you or at least help persuade you or at least help you thinking positively toward the church in some way that the church is worth fighting for, that the church is actually good and that its value, its place in this world is, is important. And that what we do as followers of Jesus and how we live out the church matters. How we practice being the church, that that matters. So four reasons, four reasons why I love the church. The number one is this. The church is resilient. The church is resilient. Uh, Jesus proclaimed in Matthew 16, 18, he says this to Peter. He's talking to Peter. Peter, I will build my church through you and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Do you remember Peter? I think there's a slide for Peter. Oh, I don't have my clicker. Maybe that's why you guys aren't moving. There we go. Oh, I talked about prepared this morning. Hey, guys. This is Peter. And he's like, hmm, I'm not going to lie here, Jesus. Really not sure what's going on still. Because that actually captures who Jesus was. Peter was the guy who convinced himself he could walk on water and then he sank. He was the guy who tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. And, Jesus, and he was rebuked by Jesus for channeling Satan. Peter was the dude who, after three years of following Jesus and listening to his teaching about peace, cuts off a Roman's ear with a sword. Jesus, Peter was the guy who didn't deny Jesus once. No, he denied him three times in the moment. And Jesus says to this complete train wreck of a human, he says, you are who I'm going to build my church through. I'm going to build my church around you through this weak, this easily compromising, out to left field follower of Jesus. He says, yeah, that's the kind of person I want to build my church. So the church begins through broken, inept people like Peter. 
It thrives through mind-blowing persecution and oppression in the first 300 years after, uh, under Rome. And then the church marries the state, and it gets entangled and ensnared in, in its marriage with the state under Constantine, and yet somehow it survives. And it continues trudging along throughout history, leaving its mark, uh, making its imprint on history and on the world around it. And 2,000 years later, we look back and like, wow, it endured all of that? It leaves you feeling kind of impressed, doesn't it? And yes, there were some insanely dark periods in the church's history. There's, there's no question about that, folks. But there has always been a portion of every generation that has pushed the church to grow in its realignment with the mission of experiencing and advancing God's kingdom. From monastics urging the church to leave the cities where there are so many distractions and go out into the desert and experience this God who's seeking to dwell with them, to uh, those who, who argued and pushed back against the, the sales of indulgences, from emancipation in Europe to the civil rights movement in the U.S., to those who have sought to hold accountable the church, the government, for the residential schools of here in the 20th century. There have always been a prophetic portion that was supposed to be there. There's always been a prophetic portion of the church that has sought to get the church back on track from being so easily derailed. It's what's kept the church going. This is why the church has survived 2,000 years. The heart of Jesus keeps beating through this body called the church, despite attempts from both within the church and from beyond the church of trying to thwart the church's mission, of trying to derail it, of trying to sideline it, of trying to get it distracted, of trying to redefine the church, of trying to make it less of a cause about Jesus and more of just a social movement. Despite doing all of these efforts, the church has always been able to maintain a focus on what it's called to. And it's been able to do that because there has been Throughout history, a remnant of people who have been committed, a prophetic vision, a prophetic remnant, of people who have been um, convicted of the way of Jesus, of what the heartbeat of Jesus looks like, and have maintained that throughout history and, and have endured intense persecution and oppression as a result of that. But they've kept it going. And so I'm grateful for that vision. I'm grateful today that we are a part of that legacy that expands 2,000 years of of a small gathering of followers of this new movement called The Way who would secretly meet in houses and they would be under the watchful eye of the Romans and they would sing songs of hope and they would speak about the resurrection and they would teach each other how to live in this new post-resurrection world. We get to be a part of that. Our gathering this morning, folks, is a testament to that legacy. Despite the train wrecks of people who have led us over the years, starting with Peter, despite the oppression and the persecution and the martyrdom, despite getting caught up in all the colors and the flavors of sin that so easily ensnare the world, despite scandals and heresy, despite even televangelists, which makes my stomach turn, the church has survived. No, the church has thrived. Amen?
And despite the gloom of our current landscape, if history is any indication, and I believe it will, I believe it is, the church will get through this season as well, and we will get on to the next season and the next hurdle that comes our way, and we will continue to survive, and we will continue to thrive as long as there is a remnant of followers of Jesus who understand the heartbeat of Jesus and who are willing to stand for truth and willing to proclaim that in a world that says, nah, we don't need this. You know why? Because Jesus said the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. In other words, nothing's going to overcome it. Nothing will. I love the church. Wow, I get emotional. <laughs> I love the church because it is resilient. I didn't expect to get emotional over that. Sorry. I love the church because it is resilient and it has stick to itness. I love the church because it has a history that is dark and yet hopeful. So number one, resilient. Number two, I love the church because it is diverse. And so Jesus uses broken, falling people to build his church in order to accomplish his kingdom purpose of having God's will on earth as is in heaven. But he didn't stop there. He designed the church from the very beginning to be diverse. The diversity of the church is like the, the rebar in our foundation that kind of holds us intact. The, that keeps the structural integrity of this thing going. The 2,000 years of pushing and pulling against us and we're still there. That's because of our diversity. The church is never meant to be monolithic. It was never meant to be all white people or all academics or um, all millennials or whatever generation. Historically, churches that are monolithic, churches that are all of one thing, they tend to fail. Or at the very least, they last long enough until they can be reformed. But you look around... And we notice that as a church, we at least are striving to be a church of baby boomers and Gen Xers and millennials and conservatives and progressives and we're lawyers and we're doctors and we're electricians and we're machinists and we're custodians and we're students and we're teachers. We're struggling doubters and we're committed believers. The church is made up of CEOs and homemakers. It's made up of active transporters who get around on bikes. And it's made up of gas-guzzling folks who get around in trucks. We're comprised of suburbanites. And we're comprised of rural country folk and everything in between. We're, we've got addicts in our midst and we've got academics. We've got wealthy and we've got those who are barely getting by. We've got the healthy We've got the sick, we've got saints, and we've got sinners. Can you think of any other institution with as diverse and an eclectic a group of humanity as what you find in the church? And the counterintuitive part is that it is because of that diversity that we thrive as a body. Isn't that beautiful? Let me read just a few verses from um, a familiar passage about diversity 
in the body that Paul writes to in the church in the Corinth, the church that uh, to the church of Corinthian, or sorry, church in Corinth to the Corinthians, a, a body of believers who struggled with their unity. And he says this in First Corinthians twelve. He says, "Just as a body, though one, has many." Uh, parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and all that list I just shared. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Verse 18. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Skip down to 25. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its equal parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. I um, used to listen to a guy named Ravi Zacharias. Some of you are familiar with Ravi Zacharias. Yeah, lots of us. And he used to talk about uh, the great quest of academics in uh, the West, the great quest of university, uh, was finding unity in diversity. How many people remember him talking about this ever? Good. And he would say that the word university actually comes from the word unity and diversity. And so the great quest of education, the, 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 the nugget of knowledge that we as in the West have been trying to pursue for all of since the 12th century when universities first came into existence was this quest to find unity in diversity. If you look on the American penny, it says in Latin, e pluribus unum, out of the many, one. This idea, again, that we as humanity are seeking to find out how do we live as one despite our diversity. And if we can figure that out, then we'll have arrived. It's kind of the assumption. Well, so we go to university to explore that when the reality is the church has been doing this all along for 2,000 years. Yeah, we've been failing at it a lot, but we've also been thriving in it. We have that unity in diversity. It's actually through being intentional about diversity as a church that we begin to figure out what it means to serve, to live as a unified body capable of fulfilling the responsibility of being the hands and the feet of Jesus, capable of meeting each other's needs and, and meeting the needs of the world around us. In other words, it's through our diversity and our unity within that diversity that we are capable of experiencing and advancing God's kingdom here on earth as we are called to. And so we want to celebrate and learn from the differences instead of dividing over them. We want to believe that the best expressions of community happen when people come together with varying perspectives, come together with varying personalities, culture, cultures, experiences, whatever those differences may be, and say, hey, let's learn to love God and to learn, learn to love others together. Let's live out this, greatest perp this greater purpose together. And we wouldn't naturally think that a diverse community would make the most sense. Because as humans, we're not inclined, naturally, to move toward this form of community. We want to be around people that are the same as us. We want to be around people that think the way we do, always. 
But here's the secret to success that I think the church has figured out about diversity within uh, a community. And it's this, that when you practice the way of the kingdom as the church, it puts us all on equal footing. When you practice the way of the kingdom, it puts us all on equal footing. In other words, when the church lives into its intended purpose of experiencing and advancing the kingdom of God together as a community, that diversity, the things that separate us, they fade, us, they fade away. Amen? The differences that keep us apart from each other become inconsequential. Because where else do you see a CEO and a store clerk do a Bible study together in which both are actively trying to learn from one another, right? Or, or where do you see a, a stay-at-home mom working with an addict to do ministry together? These are differences that in our society, outside of the context of the church, you just wouldn't see these people groups interacting together. But in the church, we're all playing on the same level. We're all in the same strata, working together for the singular purpose of living and experiencing God's kingdom together. And so we can do that. Um, and so the first thing, resiliency. I love the church because we are a body who has been resilient for 2,000 years. The second thing, I love the church. I love the church because we have learned how to... Um, live in our diversity, to take joy in that diversity, to experience unity despite our diversity. And three, I love our church because we have a solid leader and we have a pretty clear mandate too. And I'm not specifically talking about Keith here, though I, I think he's a pretty good leader in our community. Um, but I'm actually thinking about Jesus. So the church has been guided by this person, Jesus, for 2,000 years. And Jesus lays out for us some pretty straightforward guidelines for how the church ought to function, doesn't he? We talked about this last week, but it bears repeating, I think. The church's marching orders for what it means to live as a citizen within the kingdom of God comes from what Jesus taught us, and, that he can, that, and what he taught us can actually be summed up nicely in those three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And so when the church fails at, say, judging and we start judging other people and condemning others, we look to these passages and we look and we read, do not judge or you too will be judged in Matthew 7. And when we say, oh, here's an example of the church going off course, then let's get back on course. That's how we're supposed to leave. Or when the church stores up for itself treasures on earth, like say crystal cathedrals or fleets of Learjets, which some of our prosperity gospel friend uh, preachers have done. We look at that, and we, of course we roll our eyes. Yes. We roll our eyes, which is, of course, appropriate to do. But then we say, wait a second. Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. Because when you do that, that's where your heart will be found as well, as he says in chapter 6. So this must be another example of the church not being the church as it was intended to be. Or when we see churches closing the door on those who differ from us in our thinking, our orientation, our skin color, whatever that might be. We look at Jesus' teaching on, in these chapters and we see not only are we to love our friends and accept them and embrace them, but actually we're supposed to love our enemies and embrace them as well. Oh, so that's what the church is supposed to look like. You see how these chapters show us the way to live as a body? 
that it's not enough just to confess Jesus and be done, but actually Jesus had a whole way of living that he laid laid out for us to practice. Because when you start just actually showing people how Jesus instructed his church to live, that gentleness, for instance, the value of the kingdom, it ought to be a value of the church. That reconciliation is a prime uh, virtue, or seeking reconciliation is a virtue in the way of the kingdom. That Jesus taught us what radical love looks like when we look into our enemies and embrace them, when we pray for them, when we want the best for them. That kingdom citizens aren't supposed to be self-righteous. Showing off all their good deeds to the world. That we are to be people of prayer who recognize our need for Jesus and for God. That we are not to be people consumed with worry and stress because that doesn't do anything to add to our life. That we're not to judge others because we have enough of our own junk to deal with. When we look at that, when we show this, when the church um, shines, the church will shine when it practices this kingdom way of living as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. And I mean, we really stand out as a city on a hill. It's, it's hard for people out there, for the world to fling mud at us when it's actually practicing the way of Jesus. It's hard for the world to critique us when we're actually putting into practice the way that Jesus told us to live. They don't have much foot to stand on. And I love that our leader, Jesus, demonstrated perfect sacrificial love by going to the cross for us. I love that. Because it's like, hey, what does your leader look like in this institution, in this movement? Oh, our leader, he he was perfect. And then he went and died on a cross to show us what sacrificial love looks like. And he said, yeah, now go and do the same. That blows your mind. What leader does that? So so the three things so far, um, we're a resilient body. We are a body that celebrates our diversity. We have a clear, we have an awesome leader and a clear mandate. And my fourth and final point is that I love the church because we are a a people of hope. And we are hoping for more of this. I love the church because when we are fulfilling our purpose to experience and advance God's kingdom, we are essentially pointing to a reality that says, Uh, Sorry, a reality that can be tasted and yet not fully experienced in its fullness. We are pointing to something that is bigger than ourselves, folks. We look with hope, with anticipation, toward the full unveiling of this reality. But we don't get to experience it in its entirety now. We just get to taste it. Everyone has hope and everyone has expectations that it'll get better. Or it all work out in the end. But the reality is that this hope that the world has is just some kind of elusive hope. It's not really grounded. It's not really connected to any truth or any reality. And so you ask the question, how do you know it's going to get better to them? And the answer might typically be, well, it can't get much worse. Or I don't know. It's just going to work out. It has to. To which, of course, you roll your eyes and you say, right. But when the church is actually practicing justice, when the church is celebrating together, when the church is visiting and caring for the sick and the widows and the elderly and the grieving, when the church is creating art that reflects its maker, uh, when the church is concerned with restoring faith, with shaping bright disciples, with sheltering the vulnerable, see what I did there? 
those who have eyes to hear or ears to hear, pay attention. That's the grassroots new vision. In other words, when the church lives as resurrection people, when we live as resurrection people, when we are showing our, our restored status, our renewed status as, creation, as God's creations, we begin to get a tiny glimpse of the beautiful, glorious kingdom that will one day come to its complete fruition. Do you believe that? When the church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, we are pointing to what the culmination of all things will end up looking like at the end when God and Christ sets up his kingdom here on earth once and for all. We get to taste just a bit of that. We get to see just a glimmer of that now. Our hope is based on that. We get to taste it and we get to experience some part of it. But we get to anticipate it. It's full, um, <clears throat> complete unveiling in time. I love this quote from Rachel Held Evans in her book, Searching for Sunday. And if you, have, if you are at a point in your life where you're disillusioned with church and you're kind of just like ready to throw your hands up, I'm going to encourage you to read this book. You might not agree with everything that Rachel Held Evans says, but this is an incredibly encouraging book about why she hasn't given up on the church. And her last chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, ends up, uh, she's talking about the kingdom. And here's what she says. The purpose of the church and of the sacraments is to give the world a glimpse of the kingdom, to point in its direction. When we put a kingdom spin on ordinary things, water, wine, leadership, on our marriages, on our friendships, feasting, sickness, forgiveness, we see that they can be holy. They can point us to something greater than ourselves, a fantastic mystery that brings meaning to everything. Isn't that beautiful? When we infuse our lives with the way of the kingdom, we are shown just a glimmer, a glimpse of the kingdom, of a greater reality that will one day come. And we get to experience that now in this world through the church. Amen? So I love the church because it points us to something greater than ourselves. It gives us hope that this is not all there is, that things are going to get better, that it will work out in the end. And it's not just elusive hope based in nothing, that it actually points to this, points to the church, points to a greater reality. The church is resilient. The church is diverse, and we celebrate the diversity. The church finds its unity in diversity. The church has a leader who is worth following, who has demonstrated to us what, his, uh, what life in his kingdom looks like. And he's given us instructions, and he's given us a mandate, he's given us a way of living, that when we put into practice, it gives us real and meaningful hope for the future. These are just four reasons why I love the church, and I hope you do too. There are, again, like I said, a list of tons of other reasons why you love the church. And I, and I would love to converse with you about why you specifically love the church and why you haven't given up on it. And maybe this is a conversation we can have online on Facebook or whatever. But at least can you concede this morning that the church is actually worth fighting for? That it's not maybe deserving the reputation that the world has given it? 
that yeah, it, it has deserved some of the flack, absolutely, and, and there's nothing, you know, a lot of the stuff in our past and in our current state is not to be proud of. But that the church, when it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, is worth fighting for. Amen? Great. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you this morning that we have the church, this body, this institution that you've established and said that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Father, we thank you that 2,000 years has shown that to be true. The ups and the downs, the failures, the successes, the joys, the triumphs, and the just absolutely embarrassing moments in our history. And yet it's still standing today. And we are a testament to that legacy, Father. I thank you that we get to play that role as your followers of Jesus this morning. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be encouraged and that we would be um, just reminded about the purpose of this church. Reminded about why we're here and, and what, what this is all about. Help us not to get caught up in the small details and the inconsequential things, but help us to live for that greater purpose, Father, to show the world what your kingdom looks like here on earth and to give us all that hope that, Lord, we're looking, we need desperately. That this isn't all there is, that there is much more. And, Father, we can begin to actualize and we can begin to look at what that looks like right here and right now. Pray these things in Jesus' name.